This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 15 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, my guest this week is British show jumper Dawn Wofford. Dawn Paleford Wofford was born on May 23, 1936, in Blakedown, Worcestershire, England, the second of three children of Captain Jack and Valerie Palethorpe. Following in her sister Jill's footsteps with supportive parents who expected the girls to take responsibility for their ponies at an early age, instilled the principles of horsemanship that was to inspire Dawn to devote her life to the pony club. With her competitive spirit, she blazed a path in show jumping that established her as a leading lady throughout the 50s and early 60s. She represented Great Britain on several winning Nations Cup teams, was selected for the 1956 Stockholm Olympics, where she met her husband Warren Wofford, and the 1960 Rome Olympics. She won the silver medal at the 1960 Ladies' European Championship, the Arkan Puissance and the Queen Elizabeth Cup in 1955 and 1956, as well as numerous other national prizes. Dawn has been one of the leading figures in the British Pony Club. She was national chairman from 1991 to 1997, Chairman of the Show Jumping Committee from 1985 to 1991. Since 1997, she has been the coordinator on the Member Training Committee for Pony Club Tests. Dawn was nominated for the Queen's Award for Equestrianism for her services to young riders for over half a century. Dawn is the author of two books, My Horses and I, published in 1956, and My Favourite Horse Stories, published in 1959. Dawn married Warren Wofford, deceased, and the couple had three children, Valerie, Bruce, deceased, and John, and seven grandchildren. She lives in Althill, Worcestershire, where she continues to be involved with the Pony Club. Well, Dawn, you once said that you don't even remember when you started riding. You, you simply did it because you were expected to. It was a very, very small toddler, wasn't it? Absolutely, yes. And it was probably a polo pony that I first sat on because um, my father played polo um, and he did have a hunter as well. Um, uh, but as you say, it was a very natural thing to do. It was like learning to walk or skate or swim or anything else. And I think you were seen riding the, the family dog as well. <laughs> yes, I think I probably did, but I don't remember that. But as you say, your father was into polo ponies. Your mother was, was very keen for you to ride too, but your sister was just a, a, little, a little bit older than you, three years older than you. Uh, was she someone that you felt competitive with or did you want to follow in her footsteps? Oh, always extremely competitive and... Um, she had the advantage of being three years older than, than I was, and um, I envied her tremendously, and yes, I did try to be like her. She did things very well, and I wanted to do them in the same way. So we, was it a friendly rivalry then that you began at a very early age that sort of set the seed for your competitive career? Yes, it sometimes, of course, wasn't that friendly. I mean, like a normal family, we fought. And uh, it's terribly character-building, isn't it, to have a sibling like that. You, you learn just how vile human beings can be from a very early age. 
And um, But we had a lot of fun together as well. I remember riding bareback and going out when we were really quite young and riding in the dark. Riding in the dark, for some reason, had a huge fascination. And if you were bareback and with head collars on the ponies, even better. Um, probably because we couldn't be bothered to get the tack room open and get saddles and bridles on them. But we used to gallop and jump in the dark, all sorts of things. I don't think our parents knew half of what went on. But um, it, it did give us a certain amount of stickability. And, of course, in those days, we probably didn't bother to put on a, you know, a helmet or you know, a hard hat or any riding gear. You would just throw your leg over and, and as you say, a head collar would, would be enough. Absolutely. Um, there was never a no. I mean, my first riding hat was a, a little velvet thing with a satin bow in the front. And I went hunting with that. Jill was three years older than you. Did you get a lot of hand-me-downs with riding yes. kit? Yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, riding kit and, um, and ponies. Anything that wasn't worn out, I got. So, so now your father, as you said, was into polo and did some hunting as well. Where did his horse interest come from? Oh, I don't know, but uh, don't forget that he was quite elderly. Um, my mother was 28 and my father was 53 when I was born. So I had a sort of almost a grandfather figure uh, in the form of my father. And that was rather wonderful because he was a very wise man, um, a great philosopher. And uh, I, I think, you know, when he was born in 1883, the horse was still quite an important part of a household. And so he had always ridden, um, but not very competitively. He loved training his polo ponies, and I think he was probably a better trainer than he was an actual competitor. And being a great philosopher, he had a lateral view of things. Um, he, he would learn from other people, yes, but he always had his own thoughts on things. He made us safety stirrups which were his own design, and you couldn't get hung in them and you couldn't lose them unless you did have a fall. So they were quite beneficial until we got more um, adept at riding and then realized that our, actually our legs were in the wrong position. We had no uh, flexion of the ankle. But, I mean, that was the kind of thing that he did, and um, it was it was rather wonderful. It's... Uh, it gave us great advantages on certain occasions. When you say he was a great philosopher, was he also a very intellectual man in terms of the literature that he exposed you to? Did you have an extensive library at home? No, we didn't. Um, having a much younger wife, uh, and my mother wasn't into literary, literary things, I, I, I think that he... Um, no, he, 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 he didn't. He, he was a philosopher, yes, and he would talk to us a lot. Um, but we didn't have an, a, a very extensive library. Um, but he, he invented things. He was one of the first people to think about putting a light across, or rather a beam, to start a clock. And this, of course, is now used in show jumping and all sorts of other things. But um, when we first started to show jumps, they just had a piece of cotton across. And it was quite inconvenient because if anybody went through the start before the bell rang, they had to go leaping out to, um, to, to put the bit of cotton back. Whereas with a beam, of course, you just switched it on or off. 
But father came up with a lot of things like that. Um, wasn't a businessman, so he never sort of patented anything or made a lot of money out of it. But he um, he, he thought of a, a, a lot of little things, really, um, some of which have been put into practice and some which weren't. In the factory, he redesigned the pie-making machine that wrapped the pork pies. And when they sold the business 30 years later and bought a modern pie-wrapping machine from Denmark, they found that it worked at half the speed that fathers had worked at all those years before. Well, he certainly was a pioneer. As you say, the Palethorpe name is synonymous as a British producer of cooked meat. Did you have any connection at all with that in, in your early days, Dawn, or was that something that your father went off to do? It's something father went off to do, and even as we got older, um, father was of the age when the ladies didn't have anything to do with the business, mm. and uh, he, didn't, he didn't talk about the business when he came home. Uh, it was a shame, really, because either my sister or I could have gone in there and, um, and actually been quite beneficial to them, I think, but uh, it wasn't to be. Um, and father worked with his brother. His brother was a businessman, and father was an inventor, and the two of them worked in a pair and built the thing up to be very successful. Or should I say they continued to build it because it was started by my great-grandfather, and, uh, and they just carried on the good work. Now, you mentioned, of course, his polo interest. He would have had a military background too growing up in that period, Dawn. Um, sort of. Uh, he was in the Royal Flying Corps in the First World War, um, strangely enough, he wasn't in it at the beginning because his father thought it was too dangerous to be flying aeroplanes and wanted him back to be in the business after the war. Well, obviously, he wanted him back anyway, but he was an important part of the business. And, um, and, and so he was in the Worcestershire Yeomanry, which actually was out at Gallipoli. And after that fiasco, um, his father relented and decided perhaps the Royal Flying Corps wasn't that um, comparatively that dangerous after all. And so um, he was allowed to fly. Um, by the Second World War, he was too old, and so he was a member of the Home Guard. So polo would have been a natural equestrian activity for him in that period, wouldn't it? So many of them played polo and then got into hunting. Did he take you into the hunting field? Uh, yes, he did. Uh, he did. I mean, he wasn't... Um, we didn't live in the shires and we weren't dyed in the wool hunting people, but we did go hunting and we used to play stick and ball with our ponies on the lawns. He had polo sticks cut down to our size and so we fooled around with polo balls on the, on the lawn at Blakedown. You had a family groom that had been with you a very long time, John. John was the younger brother, a uh, youngest brother of our farm manager and really knew very little about horses um, and in fact he didn't he didn't ride he used to lead them for hours and I remember it shows I would leave John walking a horse and he'd be still walking it an hour later because I'd forgotten to go and tell him not to <laughs> <laughs> no he was no help at all I think um we picked up things as we went along, and of course Pony Club was wonderful. We were both members of the Pony Club, 
And dear Miss Disney, our chief instructor with the All Brighton Woodland, was absolutely wonderful with us because we were a bit eccentric. And we had these strange stirrups and wild ponies. And she coped with us very, very well and uh, took me up uh, to both of us to be test. And I think we both got our A test as well. Um, I got my A test um, between... I flew home from an international show um, in uh, somewhere in Europe, and I had the weekend at home during which I rode in a point to point and I got my A test. And then I flew back to the horses, which had already gone on to Rome, I think. Not the Olympic Games in Rome, but another show in Rome. And uh, so Pony Club really taught me most of what I know and the things that, of course, I've picked up from other wonderful people, such as Peter Robeson and Jack Talbot Ponsonby and those sort of people. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about your involvement with the Pony Club, Dawn, because you really have committed your life to its cause. But I want to take you back to your very early days growing up in, of course, what was a war-torn period. You would have been, what, nine years old at the end, by the end of the war, so you must have had some early childhood memories of its impact on you as a family. Yes. Um, of course, the interesting thing was that I don't have a lot of memories of before the war. So I don't really remember what it was like uh, in the days when, you know, we had a lot of servants running around and um, life was much easier, particularly for my mother. But, um, you know, the war started when I was three. I remember watching the bombing of Coventry through the bedroom window I stood on a chair and uh, watched it through my mother's bedroom window, and it was just like a gigantic firework display. And, of course, at three, you had no concept of the agony and grief that was going on there. Um, but it was something that I shall never forget, because parents said, oh, Coventry is being bombed, and you watched it. Um, and, of course, we had an air raid shelter, and um, when the sirens went, we went down into the air raid shelter. And during those very heavy raids on the Midlands, uh, my parents would put us to bed in the air raid shelter. And uh, in fact, they slept in the air raid shelter themselves. And my father, oh, this will give you a good idea what sort of a man he was. He, he was in the home guard. And um, very often his shift was in the middle of the night. And he didn't want to wake us. So through the big steel door of the air raid shelter he had drilled a hole through which he passed a piece of string and there was a loop on the outside of the air raid shelter and on the inside it was attached to his big toe and so when it was time for him to go on shift in the middle of the night the chap who was on duty before would give three pulls of the string and father would very silently wake up and go off without disturbing the rest of the family how did your and, mother uh, cope with it all, Dawn? Because well, she, she was wonderful. Um, the whole of the upper part of the house um, was turned into a sort of factory-producing um, camouflage nets. And all the ladies of the village would come up. And father, of course, invented wonderful sort of glorified needles so they could thread the bits of khaki and green through these massive nets. And um, that sort of thing went on. And then we had evacuees from London. Um, our, our own staff were called up to do various things in the war. 
And so the housekeeper was, in fact, evacuee. And they came. We had two or three lots of them, and they had children. Jill and I played with the children, and it was amazing. If a plane came over, they went and hid under a hedge. Well, we knew the sounds of the engines of all of the planes. You didn't have to wait. You could tell whether it was a Messerschmitt or a Spitfire or a Hurricane just by listening to it. Um, but these children were so terrified, the thought of anything in the air, and they just dived for cover, which rather brought it home to us at a very early age. Yes, very strong memories, I'm sure, that will never fade. And you mentioned your, your housekeeper there. Give us a sense, Dawn, if you would, of, your, of the family um, home at, at, when you were a child. Did you, you had maid, you had a groom. Um, was it a very comfortable existence until war came along? I think it must have been, and we had a, um, a 110 acres and um, a, a lake in it and, and woods um, and mostly farmland um, and a farm manager, we called him the bailiff, he ran the farm um, and the lake was lovely in the summer, we used to have picnics by the lake and there were two grass tennis courts by the lake and, of course, once the war started, um, they couldn't be maintained. In fact, nothing could be maintained. Um, but the one thing that we didn't have was actually a groom. I mean, John, yes, he mucked out the stables, but um, we organized our own ponies. And as we got a bit older, we were allowed to have uh, village boys to come up, and Father paid them to help us to clean tack and look after the ponies. But we had to train them. And uh, it was quite a responsibility. And if they did anything really, really bad, we had to sack them. And we were very young to be doing that. I'd have been about seven and Jill would have been ten. And we had to take responsibility for our own things. He opened accounts for us when we were quite young. And we had to pay our own entry fees. And if we won a class, the prize money would go into our accounts. But we had to pay for the transport as well. Just after the war then, we, we didn't have our own transport. So we would hire uh, a local company that had cattle trucks to come. And we had to work out what time they were to arrive and, um, uh, and pay them when the bill came. So, I mean, we didn't realize... Um, that we were a bit young to be doing this because we we hadn't any yardstick to gauge it with. Um, it seemed perfectly natural to us. But looking back, um, they did make us responsible for, for uh, the way we conducted things and the way we organized our ponies. Father would get very angry if a pony needed shod and we hadn't ordered the blacksmith. And he'd say, no foot, no horse. What are you doing with shoes that are hanging off? And uh, he was quite, I suppose, strict, but in a very, very nice way. We weren't frightened of him or anything. We absolutely idolised him. And your mother was very supportive through all this too, wasn't she, and encouraging you with the ponies? Yes, she was. I, I think whatever we'd have chosen, whatever kind of sport we'd have chosen, um, father would have supported us um, absolutely, totally, and he would have invented something wonderful to give us huge advantages. Um, but yes, mother was very supportive as well. And um, they bought a caravan so that 
we always had a base at the shows. The car would pull the caravan and um, we would be able to sort of change in it and eat in it and that sort of thing. Um, and especially it often rains over here, so it was quite nice to have somewhere to sit that was dry. Um, and yes, yeah, she, she, she was very, very supportive. Give us a sense of, of your school days and what you enjoyed out of school, because I know music was a love of yours. You enjoyed music, didn't you, as a child? Yes, I did enjoy music. Um, what wasn't identified in those days, of course, was dyslexia. And we used to do dictation at school, and I couldn't do it. And one of my early memories, I'd have been about seven at the time, is of two little paste jars, little mini jam jars that were put on the desk to catch my tears because everybody knew that I was going to cry. And it was because I could not do dictation. And I just thought I was dim and everybody else thought I was dim. But I worked terribly hard and did most of the things that I really, really wanted to do. And then years and years later, when I took my own son for a test, um, I found that he actually was managing these tests an awful lot better than I was. And he was actually, um, uh, uh, well, they decided that he was mildly dyslexic. But I, of course, was much worse than he was. So that hampered all my school life, really. I had to work jolly hard to keep up with my peers. And um, I went to boarding school for a year when I was 12. I hated it, but I, looking back, I wouldn't have missed it for anything because it taught me to stand on my own feet. Um, and um, then I came back and went to the Church of England College for Girls on a daily basis, which was wonderful because it gave more time with the ponies. And my parents said that if I did terribly well, at what is now GCSEs, I could leave school. So I worked like blazes, took seven, got seven, and was allowed to leave when I was uh, just 16, which was wonderful. So that was the carrot for you to graduating and concentrate on your first love, of course, which was horses. Obviously, you spent a lot of your childhood with, with Pony Club as well, but what, what inspired you? What was the motivation for you to really focus on show jumping? I think that um, with the ponies, Mother was ambitious and she bought us show ponies. And so we, we were showing. Um, and then Mother realized that um, with the best will in the world, show pony judges um, do tend to um, look for their own preferences. It's very much uh, what they feel and also who they know. To a certain extent, I don't say the good ones are like that, but in those days, it was very much the person who'd taken the judge out to dinner the night before, or at least that was my mother's concept. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, mother decided that it was a much fairer world uh, in the uh, show jumping than it was in the showing, and so we um, they bought our first jumping pony right at the end of the war, a pony called Rhythm. And um, and he was a wonderful old 14-2 pony, and he taught Jill an awful lot, and then I eventually inherited him. And he was the one that really got us going. And um, from then on, we went through various ponies. I mean, I, I my first lovely pony was only 11-2, 
and I did Gymkhana events on her, and she was very quick. Um, she would jump unless she was in season. If she was in season, she wouldn't jump a stick. <laughs> and so, <laughs> that was very character building. <laughs> well, you mentioned you had a, a number of them. Let, let's name them. There's Arabesque, Strawberry, Sunstar, Skyrocket, that I think you shared with Jill, Simon, Rhythm, as you mentioned, Topover, Silver, Ginger Pop. These were all early uh, partners for you, weren't they, that yes. shaped your career? Yes, and mostly hand-me-downs from Jill. Right. <laughs> I would think about half of those were, were ponies that Jill had had first. Yes. And you, you also kept some very distinguished company, D- Diane and uh, Valerie Mason, of course, well-known horsewomen in their own right. Yes, and we still keep in touch. I, in fact, I'm due for a lunch with Diana any time now. Uh, we, we meet for lunch periodically and talk about old times and new times. And, of course, she's a very eminent dressage judge now, Diana is. Yes. Yes, and you, you actually went riding on the beach in Anglesey, didn't you, as children? Yes, I suppose, yes. That had quite a big part of our very, very early days with ponies. That was before we had any ponies at home. Um, there were these little Welsh ponies. We went um, for our holidays to Anglesey, and lovely beaches there. And um, there was a little riding school, and Father used to hire these ponies so that we could ride on the beach. And then I think he bought one. Uh, he may even have bought two from there, but these were really for Jill, and I have only very vague memories of them. Well, as I mentioned, you were in some distinguished company uh, when you were competing at the top level, and Pat Smythe being one of them with Tosca, Flanagan, Prince Hal, I mean, some marvellous names. But who were your early influences as you were a young girl watching the sport from before you got to the top of the sport yourself, Dawn? I think probably uh, Peter Robeson. Um, I, I thought he was the most wonderful style. I could never ride like him because I, I didn't have the style. I didn't have, well, I just didn't have it. But um, he, he, he was wonderful. He allowed, like, uh, Warren always said, if you can explain to the horse what you want it to do and then allow it to do it, um, you will take a lot of beating. And to me, that was what Peter did. And um, and so I sort of battled on in my own way, and um, and it seemed to work quite well, really. And that, of course, Warren, your husband, and I, we're going to talk about how you met as well in a, in a moment. Peter Robeson, of course, uh, was a, a medalist himself and from the Tokyo Olympics and, and one of a, an extraordinary era. I want to talk about that era of, of show jumping, Dawn, when you came into the sport and challenges that you were facing then as a woman competing at the top level. I was wonderfully naive. Um, all sorts of things happened that should have really bothered me, I think. Um, and, and they did. They just washed over me. I had nothing to lose. Um, I had very little outside pressure on me because I didn't have a trainer. I had father and mother. And until I got on the team... Um, I just went my own way. The horses went for me. I had lovely horses. I had um, Rambler, who was only 15 to Earl's Rath Rambler. He was 15 to, but he would try his heart out for me. And uh, I had an understanding with him. Um, 
And it, it, it just all went right. It was amazing. When I look back at his record, he jumped 20 rounds at the Horse of the Year show one year, and 16 of those 20 rounds were clear. Yes. And this in three days. You know, it's amazing. And I thought then, this is horrible because this lovely horse, he's trying his heart out, and the better he does, the more he has to jump, the more I have to ask of him. And it seemed so unfair in a way. And so once I realized that, I was very, very careful with him not to overjump him. Um, and very often I'd be at an international show and they'd say, well, you've only got your two horses, you've got to go in all the classes. And I'd make excuses so that I didn't have to ride him in all the classes so that he wouldn't get too tired. You had an amazing partnership with him, didn't you? Yes, I did. Tell us how you got the ride, because it's an interesting story. It, well, yes. Um, my uncle found him in Ireland, and um, he, um, my uncle had a man who looked for horses in Ireland, um, and this man and his wife saw the horse at a show, and it had done everything naughty and shied and been all over the place, and then came down to one enormous triple bar and ballooned it. Uh, and later on, um, in the owner's kitchen, this chap was persuaded by his wife to buy the horse for my uncle. And every time the price um, was sort of rather fixed by the owner, um, this man's wife would kick him under the table and say, you know, look at him and glare at him. You must go on. You must buy this horse sort of idea. And she did. And so my uncle had him as a hunter. And uh, he had a very tiny girth, this horse. I don't think that he would have managed endurance very well. He was all sort of legs and his body was very, very athletic. He was very, very supple through his body, but a strange shape. And um, my sister at that time had a horse called Silver Cloud, and she'd won the Queen Elizabeth Cup on Silver Cloud. It's now the Queen's Cup, and um, one of our biggest competitions over here. And Jill had won it on Silver Cloud, and Silver Cloud was later diagnosed with TB, and eventually we had to put him down. And my uncle said, well, you're short of a horse. You'd better have this Earl's Wrath Rambler. And um, so we tried him, and um, he was rather erratic. He was a five-year-old, I think, at the time. And anyway, Jill, Jill took him over and um, continued his training and had dreadful times with him. He used to shy at the water, jump, and shy at shadows and all sorts of things. But eventually she did get him going. Um, there's a funny story about um, him coming to one of the first shows and a friend of my father's looked at him and said, well, you must be able to jump because you didn't buy him for his looks. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Jill, Jill had him for years. And then when she got married, I had him. And then when I got married, Jill had him back. And in 1960, we were both in training for the Olympic Games. I had Hollandia by then, and Jill had Rambler. And it was rather fun to be, you know, in training with her. Tell us about the first show that you had with him, because that was at Badminton, which, of course, is well known for eventing. Yes. 
you you remember more about this than I do, I'm afraid. Um, I did, yes, I did take him to badminton, um, but I don't I don't remember anything particular going on there. You were second on silver in the leading juvenile jumper of the year behind Pat Moss, and I'm thinking of some of your other contemporaries at that time, some great horsemen and women. Uh, can you remember the feeling that, that, that you had when you were competing against these other very good riders? Well, it certainly never bothered me. I mean, father had brought us up to think in terms of, of jumping freaky around, and the third one was quickly as you could and if you did that you probably won the class so we were never daunted by any of the opposition um the only time i think i ever remember being a little bit set aback was when i first got to arkham and realized that those the crowd there is like a football crowd I don't know exactly the capacity of the stand, but I would think it's over 50,000 people. And the thought that 50,000 people were going to be watching show jumping was just amazing. And it was a permanent course. It had got banks and ditches and tennis courts and all sorts of things that you jumped on and off and over and through. And some of the speed courses were over half a mile long. And my old horse, Hollywell Surprise, um, was a horse with an intermittent um, heart. And I thought, my golly, I wonder how he's going to manage this. But luckily, I got him very, very fit, and he did manage it. But I never remember being worried about the people that I was jumping against. I was only worried about the obstacles I'd got to jump over. So you were not intimidated by your company, but you did, as you say, jump some imposing fences. I think in Arkham, you jumped the... Six foot six wall, the very famous wall there yes. to, to win with Rambler. Yes, I did. And that was the highest that he could jump. Um, and I know it was the highest he could jump because the first, I mean, he really did try. And the first time he took that, he took one of those coping blocks out with his stifles. And um, father said, well, he can't jump any higher, but just deliberately shift your weight further forward. Don't sit in the middle of balance. Just go a little bit further forward and see what happens. And I did, and he just slid over those coping blocks. I think he touched them with all of the under part of his anatomy, and he left the coping block up. Yes. Just you, an amazing thing. You had this very distinct style, Dawn, didn't you, because you always really stretch forward with your arms to make sure you still had light contact with the mouth and to allow them to extend their neck as much as possible and that probably helped him an enormous amount jumping these uh, imposing fences in Aachen Yes I think it probably did but I mean it was just because we'd never been taught that was because I rode like that and if people tried to do anything about me they um it just didn't work. I just stiffened up, and, and I never thought about my position, except that one time over the wall in Arkham. I think that's the only time I ever considered where, I, where my hands and feet and everything else should have been. But um, I suppose it helped. I mean, the horses always, they did always go for me, and even latterly, um, when I'm really not fit to ride a wheelbarrow, and they still go for me if I want them to. So there must be something that's, you know, a little bit sort of cooperative with them. Well, 1955 and 1956 were really marvellous years for you, weren't they, Dawn? I mean, you, you won the Queen Elizabeth 
the second cup twice, didn't you, at the Royal International Horse Show, 55 and 56, and you were selected for the team, the, the uh, Stockholm Olympics. And I want to talk about that because that is where you met your husband, isn't it? That's right, yes. And there's a story behind that because um, I was in the second year of my teacher training course at the um, Birmingham School of Music. <clears throat> and I very much wanted this. I wanted to have a career that was non-horsey because um, I'd realized that if you made money out of horses, very often the financial things that were correct for your business weren't always the things that were correct for the horses. And I didn't want to be in that situation, so I wanted something quite different. And I wanted to be independent, have a career, and the only thing I thought I could do because of the dyslexia I thought I could perhaps be a music teacher. I was no good at performing, but I did know how things should sound, and therefore I wanted to become a music teacher, and I got myself into the Birmingham School of Music and paid for my fees with the money that Earl's Rice had won. And, um, and I was in the second year, and I got a very difficult six weeks to go before my finals because I was so untalented. And um, I was asked to go as reserve to Stockholm and I actually didn't want to go. And my mother said, you'll never have another horse like Rambler. You can go back and finish um, your teacher training course anytime. And I really think that you must go. And we had a bit of a row, but mother won. And so um, I went to Stockholm. Um, and then I met Warren at Stockholm in the stable yard, and that's history, really. And I never did go back and actually finish my finals, but I'd already got my teacher training degree, which has been quite helpful because um, I am qualified to teach, although I don't have those letters after my name. But yes, I did get to Stockholm with Rambler, and um, uh and I wasn't in the games, I was reserve, and Warren was reserve for the American jumping team, and also he was, was reserve for their horse trials team. And um, after a certain time, we could no longer actually ride. I think there is a, a limit to when they can slip in a reserve. And so I think it was about 48 hours before the competition in those days, um, suddenly we realized that actually we were only there to give good backup to our team members and that we weren't actually going to be called on to ride ourselves. Um, and Warren and I were both 20, so um, we went to one or two parties together. And uh, I, uh, he asked me, he said, at a very, very early stage, he said, I'm going to marry you. And I thought this was very, very forward. <laughs> And I said, <laughs> I said, I think you're very impertinent. And if you were the last person on the earth, I don't think I'd want to marry you. <laughs> and 18 months later, we were married. So how did the proposal come about then, if he already took it for granted? Well, it didn't really. I mean, you know, he wanted to marry me. And he said, well, he said, I shall just give you lots of time. And eventually, I, I expect you will agree. <laughs> or words to that effect. Tell us, <laughs> tell us about the wedding day, Dawn. Where did you get married? When was it? Oh, we got married very, very quietly. They'd given a lot of publicity to me because I'd rather been the sort of... I, I, I'd been the underdog. Um, you know, I was just this sort of slip of a girl who 
had the audacity to do wild things on horses. And um, I had nothing to lose, so very often I took the most appalling risks and they came off sometimes. And so I did beat Pat Snyder sometimes. And, of course, Pat was an established person. And, um, but the, the media loved it. And the BSJ loved it because it gave show jumping huge prominence as well. I don't say I was the only person that was doing it, but they did put a lot into my publicity. And uh, so when I was going to marry Warren, it, it was all um, hyped up a little bit. Uh, interestingly, in the Junction City Daily Union, it said eminent Kansas citizen to marry English girl. And <clears throat> in our local newspaper, it said John Palethorpe to marry Kansas boy. <clears throat> and that just gives an idea of the differences in our various parts of the world. Um, what was your parents' reaction to you marrying someone who was not an Englishman? Oh, I think they were very pleased. <clears throat> they knew Warren came from a good family and um, they were delighted for me. He does come from a very good background, as we all know. His brother, Jimmy, himself a successful international event rider. Was it uh, something that you had to consider where you were going to live, either in the States or in England? How did, how did you decide? Well, I think at that time we both wanted to ride in Europe, and so it seemed sense and a better kick-off point for us to be over here. I think at that time we always thought that we would eventually gravitate back to the States, but when Warren reached the time when he was retiring competitively and teaching more and also becoming involved in hunting, he realized that actually he was quite happy to be over here and um, and so he remained over here. He did go back to the States on a regular basis, both to see family and for business reasons. Uh, he'd go at least twice a year. And, uh, and I would occasionally go with him, depending on family commitments and so on. And, well, indeed, family commitments came along. You had three children. And so how did that affect your riding career then? Was it up at a point you decided you were going to give up the show jumping scene and concentrate on your family, Dawn? Yes, it was. I mean, I, I think one of the secrets of life is to go into the seven ages of man and, each, and live each one to a full. And I had a jolly good competitive innings. Um, and then suddenly I had two children. And I think it was when Valerie said, Mummy, do you really have to go? And she would have been about four. And I thought, well, no, I don't actually have to go. And um, more or less, that really was when I stopped. And, uh, and I did enjoy my children. And I enjoyed it even more when they started riding. And I could do things with them. With the Pony Club too, Dawn, I want to talk about your involvement with the Pony Club because you really have devoted a great deal of your life to furthering the cause of the Pony Club. Did you find that getting into committee work from being an, an active Pony Clubber yourself was, was just something you really wanted to do to give back to the sport? Yes, I think I did. Um, I thought I could do it well. Um, and I think that's probably why I did it, and I hope I did do it well. Um, it, it was a very natural thing to do. Um, I'd been a member myself and then a member's representative on the committee, so I was 
on a pony club committee when I was 18. And then I sort of more or less stayed on ever since. And then when the West Warwickshire branch was formed, um, I was on their original committee and I'm still on it. So, uh, yes, it's, and, and I've done sort of various uh, jobs. I've fulfilled various positions during that time, depending on what I've been doing at the time. Um, I, I was a DC when my children were young. And then I became an area representative. Then I was chairman of show jumping for a while. Uh, and then they put me onto the training committee because um, I could help with the editing of the manuals. Now, this is an interesting one because on the training committee at that time, we had some very eminent horsemen and horsewomen. And they very often disagreed quite radically and I think probably because of my dyslexia and having to consider every sentence very, very carefully, I could write things that they would all agree to. And so I had the privilege of working on those wonderful committees, uh, not for my knowledge, and face it, I didn't have that, but I was working with these amazing people um, for, because I could edit the things that they and, and actually write the things that they wanted put into print. And it was an, a fascinating time. We, we did the, um, the Manual of Horsemanship, uh, the Instructor's Handbook, which was based on the old cavalry manuals. Well, they all are, really. And um, uh, Training Young Horses, we did. And um, a real privilege to be on that training committee with several fellows of the British Horse Society and people that had been in training all the time. Um, it was a turning point, really, because uh, as a rider, I never thought about um, training methods, really. Um, I was best on old horses, some of them that had quirks. Um, Hollandia was wonderful, but he was a very quirky horse. Um, an old Hollywell surprise was quirky and turned the one way more than the other. And I was better at working with a horse that was already established in its ways than actually making a horse. Um, and this was because I had no background training. But after that time in the Pony Club and being on the training committee, I realized exactly the nuts and bolts of how things were done. And... As a result, I could go on and I can now judge an equitation class and I can now um, advise a younger and more able person than myself on the training of a young horse, which I couldn't have done really very well before that time. Well, you clearly have been an inspiration and been inspired by young people going through the Pony Club. I once read that you said you love the thrill of getting the young riders going, getting them kicking on and having fun. It's so rewarding. You obviously still feel that to this day, Dawn. Yes, I certainly do. Well, Dawn, you were nominated for the Queen's Award for Equestrianism right there. I mean, recognition of your work. Yes, I was nominated for it, and it was a huge honour to have been nominated for that. Um, absolutely. And and nowadays, as you say, you're spending a lot of time doing work for the Pony Club. Do you get on a horse at all yourself? Yes, I ride two or three times a week. Um, it helps an awful lot if the horse wants to go in the same direction that I want to go in. 
Um, but I still always feel better when I've had a jolly good ride. Um, and yes, I am working for the Pony Club. <clears throat> At the moment, I'm, um, I- I'm writing the history of the West Warwickshire branch because it's had its Golden Jubilee year this year. And, uh, and so I'm writing a commem- commemorative booklet, which um, will act as a history of the branch and its achievements. And this is a branch close to my heart because Warren um, and t- two other gentlemen got together and decided it should be formed. It was in a bit of country that wasn't really very well looked after by the Pony Club because it was out on a limb. And um, and so the people that were involved with the branches around it decided that because they weren't looking after this particular area very well, that it should have its own branch. And that's how it started up. And um, and and Warren was very instrumental in getting it off the ground. So obviously it's close to my heart, and I shall be glad when this history is suitably produced and um, and giving people pleasure. Well, of all of those accomplishments, Dawn, when you reflect on your career as a leading lady in the sport of show jumping, your involvement with the Pony Club and beyond, what accomplishments would you be most proud of? I think probably demerging the Pony Club from the BHS. And this was such a difficult thing because um, I'm a very British Horse Society-minded person. And the British Horse Society was our parent body. And as chairman of the Pony Club, I had to work out how we were going to cope with two new acts. They were charities acts, which tightened up the responsibilities of trustees. And it actually meant that the trustees of the British Horse Society were going to be responsible for the Pony Club's, I think it was about 137 at that time, branches of the Pony Club. And it just wasn't going to work. And so, first of all, we had to, I mean, first of all, my council were totally supportive and realized that this was going to have to happen. Then we had to make sure that our DCs understood why it had to happen and get them on side. And then I had to convince the 41 trustees of the British Horse Society that actually the Pony Club should be a charity in its own right. And it took a long time, but eventually I got a a unanimous uh, agreement that this should be so and also that the Pony Club should take out its reserves. And this was important because I knew it would have teething troubles when it was its own charity and that it would need this extra backup until it was able to stand on its own feet properly without the support that the British Horse Society had always given us. And so we had to not only come out of the BHS, but we had to bring our reserves out as well, which left obviously a huge hole in the British Horse Society's reserves. So it was a difficult thing to do, and I did it, and I'm pleased I did it, and eventually I think that everybody will realise that it was a good thing to have done. Um, and, and I hope that in the future, um, both the Pony Club and the BHS, and in fact the, um, 
the British Equestrian Federation will go from strength to strength. Um, and I feel that this was my little tiny um, contribution to bringing the thing forward into a more modern concept. Would you like to be remembered as a horsewoman or a sportswoman? Oh, I think a sportswoman. I mean, horses are wonderful. Uh, they've taken me all around the world. Um, there are some pretty horrible ones, but they're such generous animals, aren't they? And, and a part of what I've done, I think, is really for the horses to try to put back a little bit of what they've given to me. And some of the things I've done is really purely to try and make the lot of the horse a little bit better. Um, and I think Pony Club does this. You know, the children are taught that they must consider their pony and, and what's going on with the pony's welfare and so on. So, yes, a horse person, but at the same time, um, I just do enjoy sports of all kinds. And so perhaps, yes, I would like to be remembered as a sports person. Did you have any favourite shows? Of course, Haringey and White City were two of what we would call the majors in those days, weren't they, Dawn? Did, oh, you, yes, have, did you have any venues that were your favourites? It has to be Dublin. It has to be Dublin. What a wonderful show. I mean, the people over there just lived for horses. And when I first went to Dublin in the very early days, the... Um, the, the traffic on the main streets would stop for a horse to go across. Just absolutely amazing. And the hospitality that we were given there was incredible. So it's got to be Dublin. If you could pick out a class, one class or one show from your career, what would it be to highlight your career? I think the Grand Prix in Madrid on Hollandia. Um, I haven't talked about Hollandia, so very briefly, Hollandia belonged to my mother-in-law. And after Valerie was born, my first child, and they wanted me to ride again, well, Warren said it was just cost-effective for me to ride again because um, we could have all expenses paid, but only half expenses paid if I wasn't riding. So it really made sense for me to ride. And as I was a, a mother... The family decided I should have the best horse, which was Hollandia. And so my mother-in-law, who obviously was American, had to give me the horse. Because in those days, you couldn't ride a horse belonging to somebody from another country. So she actually gave me Hollandia, which was the most amazing thing for me. And I rode him, and he was a funny old horse, but I did get on with him. And I won the Grand Prix of Madrid with him. And it was amazing in the jump-off. It was a jump-off on time, and there was a double which was very, very short. It was about 22 feet inside measurements. And Hollandia had a massive jump, and he was a contrary old chap. And if you tried to tell him this was a short double and jump in short, he'd probably have fought me on the approach. And so I rode him down to the first one as if I wanted him to jump in big. And so he put his ears back and wouldn't jumping big so he pitched in put this tiny stride in and came out and as a result of jumping that 22 foot double in a flat out gallop I won the Grand Prix of Madrid on time and in doing so he overreached in the middle of that double and he flung his shoe off and it missed the head 
of a chap that was standing in the ring taking photographs. And it missed his head by inches. And, um, and he was the son of a family that we knew very, very well. And it was just an extraordinary thing to happen. Um, and we won this trophy, this um, Grand Prix of Madrid, and I've still got it on the sideboard. So it's a constant memory of that day. Yes, I, I rode Hollandia in um, the Ladies' Championship in Copenhagen, um, but I also rode him in the Games in Rome. In Rome too, yes, in 1960. What wonderful partnerships you, you've had with so many good horses now. I, I want to ask you, Dawn, finally, at the end of the day, when you close your door, what has meant the most to you? I've had so many wonderful days. I've had some fantastic days hunting, you know, latterly. And uh, always on horses that I've been lent or given, um, I've had some wonderful, wonderful hunters. And uh, I think some of those days have been just mind-boggling. Um, I've also had some very good days skiing. I love skiing, and um, I don't ski anymore now. But um, like the riding, I was rather sort of self-taught, but I could usually get where I wanted to be. And those have been wonderful days as well. But um, I, I suppose um, skiing and hunting, yes. What would you say to young people who are thinking of coming up into the Pony Club and uh, taking the path that you have trod so well? Um, I would say these days it entails far more dedication than I ever had. Uh, they've got to put a lot of work in. They've got to have a position which is so good that it never gets compromised and that they don't even, they don't even have to think about it at all. Um, I don't know whether you can develop feel or not. I do know that some people have an awful lot more of it than other people. Uh, but if you haven't got any of it and you're not going to work on it, don't bother. Um, but if you really want to do it and you find somebody that will help you, uh, then dedication goes an awful long way. Uh, there's an awful lot of luck in it and whether you get the right horse and whether you get the right trainer and whether you get the right backup. But what I would say to them is if you, if you really, really want to do something, go for it because you'll get there wonderful advice i hope you continue with your pony club activities and enjoy your riding for a long time to come dawn thank you so much for letting us visit your life thank you it's been a great pleasure i'm chris stafford please join me again next time when we visit the life of another equestrian legend mm -hmm.